Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. In this week's episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast, we're going to be discussing how nutrition can be used to support kiddos who have ADHD. And before we dive into the interview, I just want to be crystal clear that we are talking about using nutrition as a tool in your toolbox, not as a cure for ADHD symptoms. It can be really tricky to talk about this topic without kind of coming off as ableist. Um, So we are not attempting to use nutrition to make your kid with ADHD more like neurotypical kids, but more we are taking a look at how nutrition can support your child and being their best selves exactly as they are. Uh, So I hope that makes sense. Um, And with that, let's dive into the interview. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Balanced Parent Podcast. This is Dr. Laura Froyan. And today we're going to be talking about how we can help our kiddos with ADHD through nutrition. And we're going to have a very balanced conversation about this with a wonderful pediatric functional medicine health coach, Momona Salim. I'm so excited to have you here with me. And I am looking forward to jumping into this into this conversation. So why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about you and who you are and what you do. Great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Like you said, I, I work mostly with children. So I'm a pediatric functional medicine health coach. And the whole idea of, you know, being a functional medicine health coach is really looking at the whole body as a connected unit, you know, that whole balanced approach where your brain and your gut and the rest of your body is all one. And so we always have, you know, one part is always affecting the other. So we need to look at the whole holistic view of our body and care for it in in, in its entirety. So that's really what I do. I work mostly with children with ADHD, but I'm not one who focuses too much on diagnoses and labels. I like to be more inclusive of, you know, children who have um, symptoms that are similar to ADHD. So symptoms of hyperactivity, impulsivity, whether it's mood and behavior dysregulation, or whether it's just inattention and focus issues, right? So we want to be inclusive of all of those kiddos, irrespective of of their their diagnosis and give all of them a chance to thrive. And so I work mostly through diet and their lifestyle and working at, you know, root causes of what could be 
causing a lot of those behaviors. So really just kind of diving into looking at all of these things and, and helping the parents work with their children and, you know, just allowing them to get better piece by piece. Okay. So tell me then, how is nutrition and ADHD, how are they related? Can you talk, tell me, kind of give us like a, a high level picture of how nutrition can influence ADHD or some of the symptoms that come along with ADHD? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And, you know, what I like to always think of food as information for our body, right? So when we're putting food in our body, it's this information that's going into our body that then our body's using for various processes, right? So what we're putting into our body is the output will be dependent on what we put in, right? So a lot of times, and and research is supporting that, you know, there are various foods that we're eating that can help nourish our body and make, you know, us feel better. And this whole concept of food as medicine comes from there of using foods to help kind of connect all of these various barriers that we might have or deficiencies in some ways. And then there's some foods that we're eating that we're being exposed to more of than we need to. And that is causing negative impact on our body or or on our children's body. And we're seeing that connected very, very closely to the way how our children behave and how they feel and just small things of, you know, how they sleep, for example, mm-hmm. how their mood varies from, you know, different t- times of the day. So we we basically see this very, very strong connection of nutrition with the way that our children's bodies are functioning. And mm-hmm. it's not just, and I like to look at it from this place of abundance where food, we're not really looking at food more from like taking away but more what can we add in to kind of nourish our children's bodies, right? Giving them that information and those and that what it needs, the building blocks that the body needs to grow and to nourish and to kind of make that bridge between, you know, their needs and what we're providing it. Okay. And so what are some of those, those things that we could be thinking about adding in if we're noticing some hyperactivity or some focus issues with our kiddos or gosh, even for ourselves? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great question. And the the very first thing that I always like to, you know, tell parents is, let's start taking this approach of feeding our children whole nutrient dense foods, right? We have kind of gone into this, you know, of eating a lot of processed foods, which is, in some ways, it's convenient. And, you know, there's a place and a time, and I don't like to kind of bash the processed food all in itself there is a time and a place there are times when parents have no time no energy and it meets a purpose and that's okay and there's there's true food access issues too exactly right and 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 we want to be respectful for all of that but what i what what this approach of eating whole nutrient-dense food is that we're trying to make that change over time to include eating foods that include things like more fruits and more vegetables, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get protein, good quality proteins into our kids' bodies, you know, good quality fats. So when we're making those decisions of what to buy and what to bring into our homes, we're being more conscious of what those things are so that, you know, when it's it's lunchtime or dinner time or snack time, our homes already have those foods that we were more conscious about bringing in. So you know, when we start with this more like, you know, whole foods baseline, 
then we have more to pick from. And so that's like the very first place where I like to start. But then I like to build up on that. And like I said, more good quality proteins, right? That is something that what tends to happen is that protein tends to slip and not be one of the more essential pieces of our children's plates. And as a result of that, we're gravitating more towards, you know, sugary treats and things to kind of fill up. Mm -hmm. And that might be causing behaviors like hyperactivity. And, you know, this is something that a lot of research has been done and it shows that, you know, increased consumption of sugar is causing and can cause increased hyperactivity or even mood and behavior issues. So we're seeing these connections. So when we eat more protein, we feel and our children feel more satiated. And as a result, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not really running and chasing for those snacks from, from the pantry, you know, right after dinner or right after lunch. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I, I love the idea of having kind of a a well-balanced plate, you know, having the fruits and veggies and some protein on your plate. Um, Of course, we have to think about some kids have limited palates, you know, have things that they, you know, that they prefer over others, which is important too, to be thinking about. You can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been doing some research on ADHD and sugar seeking. There's some ideas that in that folks with ADHD will seek sugar more in an attempt to regulate themselves. And I'm kind of curious about that connection and, and how we can, if we're noticing that happening either with ourselves or with our kids, how we can support them in getting that need met, whatever kind of underlying need is happening there in a way that is good for them, but also not vilifying of sugar. Because I think that that's something that's really important for my audience is we want to have a very balanced approach to um, not, you know, that all food is good food and all food has a good purpose for us. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that when we look at this connection, so first is to understand this connection (laughs) of sugar and, you know, why you have this need to just that you crave it and you want it and you want it right now, it really comes from the composition of the brain, right? We have these neurotransmitters called dopamine, and those are some that are pretty low in people with ADHD, including children with ADHD. And so when your dopamine is low, your brain will always take priority on making sure that it increases that dopamine level. So it will say, hey, levels are low, do something about it. So it wants an external stimuli to come in and to help increase that. Now, in some people, it could be because they just need to go and get some sugar and they use food as a way to kind of get that dopamine level high. In other kids who we like to say who are very, very, very hyperactive, their body is giving them the cue to go start jumping from the couches mm. and just, you know, interesting doing all kinds of things. So it's their external stimuli telling them to increase their, their, their dopamine levels. And that's one of the reasons when we're working with parents of children with ADHD, we're like, listen, you know, if your child has, has hyperactivity in a class setting, make sure you talk to your teacher and you say after every 20 minutes of work, you give them five minutes of runaround time. Mm. And what does that do? It helps increase that dopamine level, right? Oh, that's so, fascinating. Yeah, so, I, that so makes so much basically, sense. So we're basically looking down, we're, we're, we're breaking it down to see what is causing it in the first place, right? It's not the food, it's not the sugar necessarily, but what is it that's happening at the bottom? And we're seeing that it's these low dopamine levels that are causing those behaviors. Now, mm. for someone who runs off and tries to get, 
you know, meet that that dopamine demand through food, what can they do, right? So again, we bring them back down to that idea of a more balanced plate, right? So they, at least to start off with, you're satiating their body, firstly, with, with a balanced, nutritious, like high fat, high protein meal. But then in addition to that, you create an environment around them. So it's like a lifestyle, right? So you allow your child to go outside and play for a while, right? You do a lot of parents use trampolines to get Mm. their kids to go and play on the trampoline, bounce on it for 10, 15 minutes. And that helps them with, with their, with their dopamine levels. So there are various other things and various tools that you can use to, to raise those dopamine levels. And then over time, you kind of help and you work with the child to move them away from just, you know, using food as, 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 as a way for their brain to say, hey, we need to increase dopamine, go and start eating sugar, for example. Yeah. I, okay. So this is really fascinating to me too. And I think that I'm, I'm guessing that screens often are very similar, work very similarly, exactly. playing games, like, you know, especially like rewarding games with levels mm-hmm. or even social yeah. media with the scroll function definitely is related to our dopamine levels. So this is one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about just now is framing it from a place of like helping your child or yourself, if you're facing these things, I'm not formally diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure I have ADHD and I'd go for sugar or screens to increase my dopamine. And so even just thinking for myself, thinking about like anytime I have that pull or that drive to do some of those things, shifting even how I talk in my brain to I really want a piece of candy to my brain is asking for dopamine, you know, even just that language and reframing that and helping them see that your body is asking for something specific and it's used to getting it this way. And there's also there's additional ways to get it, too. Yeah. And you know what? That's and nothing wrong with having it that way either. You know, no, it's just, just noticing. Exactly. Right. And being more mindful of, of why you're doing that. And also teaching your child to be mindful of those moments when when they feel like their body is is asking for an external stimuli. And so to provide that in different ways. Right. We mm-hmm. see more and more parents using fidget spinners and yeah. things like that. Right. And, and they help a lot with inattention, but they also help with with various like you know for children it's it's a sensory thing and so mm-hmm. it helps their body kind of re-regulate itself and so it's about creating that awareness earlier on in, in your child or in an adult of of that moment when that dopamine level is starting to shift and when your body's starting to require that and so that's really just like one of the ways and you spoke a little bit about you know a little bit earlier about kids who have very selective palates or who eat very, very particular amounts of food. And I wanted to talk about that because that it's extreme. We see a lot of that with children with ADHD who, uh, you know, who might also have sensory issues and, mm-hmm. and, and sensory, you know, troubles with, with different kinds of food. Right. And so that can also go in and we can attach that to their, their neurotransmitter, you know, just the way how they work. But in addition to that, why it's important to also increase their palate and increase a variety and it takes more time and it takes being very very slow and very very respectful right because mm-hmm. I mean imagine as as an adult if I'm saying to you like you know if you only like to eat certain amounts of food and I say hey listen from today you're just going to eat everything I give you like you're going to resist that and so we need to be respectful with children as well Absolutely. but along with that giving them some boundaries and giving them some space but Again, looking under 
all of these layers. Why is there selective eating? A lot of times there is micronutrient deficiencies. So things like zinc deficiencies that can cause selective eating, right? So mm-hmm. our palate, so our tongue, our taste can be, it can, can vary, right? Food can taste very, very bitter for some people. It can taste very, you know, or you might not taste anything at all when you put food in your mouth. And it, I mean, like, just think about it. If we're going to be yeah. eating something like that, it, you will be revolted and you wouldn't want to try again, right? And you, mm-hmm. You're going to spit it out and say, this is yuck. It makes sense when you start to think about these things. And then another thing that is so closely tied to that, and is also tied to sugar, is that you your child could have, a yeast overgrowth so it starts with your gut right we might have we have loads of these bacteria in and yeasts in our in our gut but we can have an overgrowth and so once we have an overgrowth of yeast it kind of moves us into craving more sugar but also what we need to realize is that these bacteria are really important in you know making our our neurotransmitters so they Mm -hmm. it's like the cycle that you know once it's out of whack then we need to go back and take all of these steps back to like start thinking about, okay, what's wrong and how do we piece by piece and layer by layer put it together? Okay. So I'm, I'm just feeling I'm, I'm kind of, you know, sometimes I feel like when I'm interviewing someone, I'm thinking about the listener, right? And so I'm thinking about the average listener who's maybe seeing some things in their kids. How would they get started in figuring out if they their child maybe has a zinc deficiency or has some gut imbalances? Like what is the starting point? Where can they go? Because, you know, not everyone can afford a, a private health coach. Not everyone has access to doctors who will yeah. run tests. Like where is the starting point? So I think that the first best place is starting with food, right? So if you're going to start off with trying to create that that variety at home, and, and if you're starting to see resistance come in the way, right, if you've got a child with a selective palate, then when you're armed with information like this, right, if you want to go and check the various micronutrient deficiencies you might your child might have, you can just go to your pediatrician and ask them to run these tests. And, the, you know, running like vitamin mineral tests are pretty normal and pretty, you know, easy to access through your pediatrician, and they should be able to do that. And that would really help show you whether, you know, they are high or low or, you know, how, how you need mm-hmm. to address them. There are some, you know, at home zinc tests that you can run as well, which, you know, it's, it's very easy. It's like a drink that you put in your mouth or your child takes in their mouth. And like, depending on if their zinc levels are high or low, they'll either taste or not taste the, the, the liquid. So it's kind of very, very simple and very mm-hmm. quick. And so it's not very it might be hard for those children who have sensory issues and who don't like to put things in their mouth, but for people that are okay and so and especially adults, that's a very easy way to you know to do your um your zinc at home test without even having to go to the pediatrician. Hold on, can yeah, I ask for- a question about that? So, like, if someone's looking for that test, where would they go to find it? You could get it. I've I've seen it on Amazon. I could oh, share okay. a link with you after. Um, sure. And then it's easily just, no, it's fine. I mean, I think that the more knowledge and information that we can put out there, I've seen it on Amazon. So it should be pretty easy for everyone to, you know, get their hands on that. And so we were just talking about something and I kind of lost my... I'm sorry, I interrupted no, no, you. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. So we were talking about gut health and you were talking about yes. how can parents identify, you know, gut problems. And that is something that, you know... When I start working with families, the very first thing I ask them is, you know, how often does your child poop? And they just kind of look at me like, 
why is she asking me about my child's poop? Like I'm here to say that, you know, my child is hyperactive in here. She's asking about poop, but you know, how often, how regularly, how our child poops, what our child's poop looks like, what the color is, is such a great indicator of what's going on in their bodies, right? So first of all, keep an eye on that. Does okay. your child go, and your child must go every day, right? Okay. There's so many pediatricians out there that will say it's okay for children not to go and to miss a few days. But think of it this way, like pooping is our body's major detoxification and like, mm -hmm. you know, just removal of waste. So when that waste is just sitting in your body for a few days, all of that goes back into your into your body. Some of it is, is absorbed back in and it goes back into your circulation. So then your liver is working over time. Mm -hmm. So if your child has constipation, if your child has diarrhea, if your child is not going every day, if you feel like your child is not having fully formed stools and like there's the bristol stool chart that uh, i'm sure you know many people who are listening in are either aware of or it's mm -hmm. an easy google search to do and you'll just see this chart that tells you what a normal stool looks like and what you know it should be a red flag for you and so just kind of starting off from that point mm -hmm. and then for after that just looking at you know does my child have a stomachache very often? You know, there's a, a great thing. Like when it's full moon, do you see that your child has a lot of itching in their bum, right? Or you start seeing irritability and that can mean parasites, right? Because at full moon, parasites come out to play. And so, you know, there are all of these things that, that we're looking at that kind of will tell us, is my child, you know, are they eating a lot of sugar? Hyperactivity can also indicate to yeast overgrowth and so that again stems back from the gut so we're looking at a lot of these things and saying okay is it there like first of all it's like identification and saying you know is that problem there to start off with and so we're looking at their gut we're looking at their body our child's body is the best place to give us cues on what's happening right it is our feedback loop mm -hmm. right so we're constantly looking at their body and respecting their body for what it's telling us as parents okay and so yeah so that's just really what we're looking at okay and so kind of just thinking too about you know so we've been talking about important things to add are, is there anything that if you do have a kiddo who has some ADHD like symptoms or has a diagnosis that you would be looking at avoiding other than sugar yeah. So one of the things that we do look at are food allergens. So, you know, some parents, if they can afford it, and if, and you know, if that's something that they're willing to do, they can do a food um, intolerance test or a food sensitivity test, really, right? And to kind of see what their body might be sensitive to what kinds of foods. And so this is different than an allergy, which is an IgG, IgE, where, you know, a lot of kids who have like, peanut or tree nut or, you know, um, celiac disease. This is a little bit different than that. These are just that your body constantly when it's exposed to these foods is getting inflamed over time. And because of that inflammation, then we're starting to see all of these various behaviors come up. So for kids with ADHD, it starts to affect the gut, the, the neurotransmitters in the brain. For other kids, it can be asthma or it can be eczema, right? So it varies, but it's starting off from this point of inflammation. And so 
we look at, you know, things like common allergens. For those pe- parents who don't want to run the test, they can just do it, a simple elimination at home of eliminating basic things like gluten, dairy, you know, corn, soy, and then in some cases, um, eggs. So it's, these are like the few foods that I, when I'm working, the, the second step after, you know, incorporating a lot of foods is, then looking at taking away these foods for a short periods of, of time and testing the body. So, you know, you spend two weeks of no exposure. And then after that, one by one, you expose the body to one of these foods and then you wait and you see if the body reacts, right? If you see an improvement mm-hmm. in your child's behavior, one of these foods is the, the cause. And so that's when you're reintroducing and you're retesting you can really find out which ones of those foods are, are, you know, a a big trigger for your child. And so that also, this approach of like reintroduction also prevents demonizing food and alienating whole food groups Mm -hmm. and allowing kids to, you know, for certain periods of time, just avoid the foods that are causing those, you know, that inflammation or those behaviors rather than alienating a whole subset of foods. Yeah, I get some one of the, one of the things that makes me feel worried and concerned sometimes for families who are exploring nutritional changes is that for a kiddo who's already got a selective palate, removing food groups can be really, really hard and scary and anxiety provoking to think about. Okay, so if I'm going to take out gluten, what am I going to feed my kid? You know, if the most of what they eat are you know their preferred foods are crackers and breads, you know, too. And so I think I I'm kind of just wanting to add in a like if it like a, just a like note of hope for families who really for for them that you know doing like an elimination diet and stuff where it's just really not possible like I, can I just have a note of hope for them that there's plenty that they can do where they don't have to stress themselves out a whole lot you know what I mean <laughs> yeah and you know what that's one of the first questions I get asked from parents all the time is, you know, my child is already eating, like, is just eating four things. If I take those four things away, what will they eat, right? And so I have two answers for that always. One, definitely that, you know, you can, you can wait for the elimination diet. Once you're done adding some foods in, and you feel like your child is more accepting, accepting of some foods. But one of the things that we see a lot is that once we take away some of these allergen foods, right, these foods that your child's body is sensitive to, it opens up their palate for a lot more foods. It's because these foods tend to sometimes act like inhibitors in the brain. And so if you're having casein, which is, you know, the protein in in milk, it, it tends to basically act almost like an opioid in the brain where it says give me more give me more give me more and it only wants that and so for certain for certain children for certain people when we take that casein away the first few days are the hardest but then and I've seen this with parent after parent saying my child it just changed right Mm -hmm. it opened up their palate it allowed just taking away that one food that their brain was addicted to allowed them to open up their palate to so many more foods so it's you know it it's hard yes it's hard to to think about you know taking away food completely how will my child survive Mm 
how will my household survive that? But knowing and doing it with some level of guidance really, really helps, you know, you to push through the first few days and, and you do it in a gentle way. Like I always mm-hmm. tell parents that you pick one, if you're going to start this elimination or you're going to start, you start with one food first. You okay. always start with one meal a day, right? So for one week, you only pick one meal. You don't say, I'm going to go dive all in. And you know what? Mm. From tomorrow, my whole family is not going to eat gluten, no dairy, no sugar. It doesn't work. And it doesn't, you can't have success that way because you haven't set yourself up for success. Yeah. If you say, okay, this week, I'm going to pick one meal and I'm going to say, we're going to turn that meal gluten-free, right? Mm. And it, the, the chances of success and keeping it continuous for longer periods of time grows because you're slowly adding those. When you feel like you've got the grip of a gluten-free, for example, breakfast, you're like, okay, I'm confident. I think I can move into lunch. And then you move into lunch, right? Okay. So it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. We're I mean, that's, yeah. Slow. Yeah, this seems like such a more compassionate approach than this kind of rigid, almost emergency-like way that I, I feel like people, you know, like the Whole30 and other like elimination diets that are out there, they seem like they could be really intense and anxiety-provoking for parents and kids and really trigger some scarcity in in everybody involved too. So I really like that more kind of gradual and self-compassionate, like self-kindness approach yeah. to it. It that seems like a much better, like mentally healthy way yeah. to approach and it. And I just wanted to add one thing to that is that we're at least for, you know, the audience that I work with, we're, we're working with children, right? Yeah. And so we have to set them up for healthier behaviors and a healthy relationship with food for life. Like we're doing these, yeah. um, we're helping their, their diet for now. We're helping their condition in the short term right now, but we can't lose sight of the rest of their life and their relationship with food. And so as aggressive as we are right now, it has an impact on how they're going to be when they grow up. Right. And, mm-hmm. and how they are as adults and their relationship with yeah. food as adults. So it's really being intentional and respectful of that and doing it really slow. Because, I mean, you're not going to win a lottery by just saying, you know, I did everything in a month. And well, you know what? Yes. For some parents who who can do that and whose kids have more of a varied diet, maybe mm-hmm. they can do it. And that's OK. But for others, you know, it's okay to take it slow. And so it's also being respectful of the community that we have and the community that we develop, you know, with with kids and parents who have various struggles. And so it's being compassionate towards them as well. I think that that's a very important perspective to have. And I I also like I I think I, I think it's just. I want to highlight what you said about this relationship with food. I think that that is a big concern for a lot of the parents who listen to this podcast. Um, Many of us don't have that healthy relationship with food. Um, Many of us have spent years trying to heal our relationship with food. And we want our kids to grow into having 
a healthy, nourishing relationship with food. And that can be really hard to it for, especially for those of us um, who like myself are in recovery for eating disordered eating. It's really hard to move into that vulnerable space of, okay, I'm going to start thinking about making diet changes for my kids. And I don't want to hand them an eating disorder. And I don't know how to do this necessarily. You know, it's, it's scary to, to move into that space. And you know what, like on the other side of all of this is also looking at the parent and the health of the parent, right? So making these changes can trigger so much anxiety and so much stress and bring back so much trauma for Mm -hmm. parents, right? And so one of the most important things for recovery of children and to help them thrive is to have parents who are also thriving, right? So if a child, uh, if a parent is is reliving their trauma because of the changes that they need to make with their child, that there is a way that that trauma is going to be passed down in into the household in some form of the other. Mm-hmm. So we want to be compassionate, but everybody, yes, we want to make these changes together as a family, as much as we can, as, mm-hmm. as much as they're there, you know, it's possible mm-hmm. because it reduces the anxiety of the child who, mm-hmm. who we're trying to help, right? There's, there's a feeling of alienation. And again, that feeling of this diet is for me. And then the word diet, like, you know, I cannot eat this while mm-hmm. the sibling is eating, you know, exactly what they're trying to avoid yeah. like on the same table. But we want to look at all of this from like a place of thinking of everybody. And so mm-hmm. being gentle, being slow, and then being intentional mm-hmm. really, really helps. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this conversation um, and I appreciate the the balance that you're bringing to it um, so much. So if people want to learn more from you, I know you've got a podcast. Why don't you um, let us in on where we can find you? Yeah. So the podcast is everywhere where you listen to podcasts and it's called Helping Children Thrive. And it's really about giving parents a lot, a lot more in-depth you know, functional medicine tools and and understanding about their kiddos health. So yeah, check me out over there. Okay. I'll have all your links to your podcast and your socials in the show notes. Thank you again for being here with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right, that's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.